in order to have long-term success, you need to play the long game, which is making content that's consistent and prioritizing consistency over perfection. What's up, guys? It's Matt here again. I recently interviewed Carlos Eni, aka Insane in the Rain Music. He manages a YouTube channel where he arranges and performs incredible jazz arrangements of video game songs. We talked through his origin, his influences, the stars system he uses for sight reading music. He walked me through his entire video process, which is fascinating, how he thinks through criticisms and the power of setting deadlines. I'm telling you guys, there is so much value in this interview. So if you're a music maker of any kind, get a pen and pencil ready. As a kid, I played a lot of video games. Um, the first one I can remember ever playing was Wave Race 64 on the Nintendo 64, which was so much fun, and I still haven't done a cover from it, but I would like to. Um, <laughs> and uh, the first moment where I can really remember appreciating video game music by itself, um, it was a rebroadcast of a video games live concert that happened on PBS. Um, and I didn't know that it was video games live at the time, or that it was PBS at the time, but it was just on the TV that my, my mom and I were watching, and then apparently I told my mom, Mom, I want to do that when I grow up, or something like that. Just like that, in that same timbre of voice? <laughs> I was probably maybe a little lower than that. I don't know if my voice was that high <laughs> when, I was, when I was a kid. Got uh, it. But that was, I would say that was the moment of ignition. Um, from that point on, I, uh, I remember playing Super Mario World every day before school. That was a lot of fun. Um, and then come middle school, I used to spend my lunch periods... Um, going to the library where Sibelius was on the computers, and I learned that you can open MIDI files in Sibelius and see music notation. And I had also found this site called, I think it's like vgmidi.com. Oh, yeah. Something like that. I've heard of that. Yep. You can pull, yeah, you can pull MIDIs of video game songs, and I'll, I, pull, I used to like pull songs from there and open them in Sibelius and be like, oh my gosh, these songs have notes. <laughs> it blew your mind, huh? I, yeah, I just didn't realize that you could actually play that stuff. Yeah. So I was I was really fascinated by that. Um, so that's the, the video game side of things. And then I guess for the jazz side of things, I was first introduced to um, jazz in my sixth grade year from my band director. I had been playing clarinet and saxophone in elementary school band beforehand. And uh, that was really when I first got like, became aware of what jazz was, you know, and how it was different from other types of music. I didn't really listen to jazz at all before sixth grade, but once once that came around and I started learning how to improvise, it became a very important part of my life. When you think back, and I know you, you talked about Wave Race, um, which is an amazing game, and the, I just remember all I remember is the physics in that game, where you could like bounce on the waves, and how it was yeah, and, like, they were great. Blew my mind when I was a kid um, on the N sixty four. Aside <laughs> from that, what other games, when you think back, had like the biggest impact on you, either musically or just the quality of the game itself? You know, a lot of people cite. Koji Kondo or Nobuo Uematsu, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. people like that. Is there a particular game that had like a huge impact on you and the the music especially? Um, I would say Pokemon Fire Red, or not Fire Red, Pokemon Red. Um, when I I picked it up at a thrift store once, and that was my first foray 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 <laughs> into the world of a uh, Pokemon music. And I guess most of the music at that time was by Masuda, um, but I really. That was, I think, that was the most like inspiring or just wow generating um, game that I have played at that point. Some other ones that I can think of: um, uh, Star Fox sixty four had a really interesting soundtrack that I I can still appreciate to this day. But I and I I thought I knew I thought it was interesting as a kid. Um, but I would say Pokemon and Star Fox sixty four. You know, Star Fox sixty four. I was listening to the entire score uh, recently. And it is very reminiscent of a film score. Like, it is essentially a film score. Um, and it's yeah, it's really yeah. amazing because Koji Kondo is just so diverse. Um, yeah, with... it's, a very, it's a very melodic score, too. Mm -hmm. And I think that's I mean, what a lot of film scores 
sort of lack these days. Sure. Not that, I mean, I, I, I understand why you would maybe not want to choose a melody to not overshadow the dialogue or the action that's going on, you know. Um, but in a video game like that where you're focusing on the gameplay and you still have, you know, I think I, I think it's fair to say that you have some mental capacity to, like, understand a melody and remember it. Um, sure. But that's that's one of the things that allows you to latch on to that stuff better. You know, what what is it about jazz? You know, when you, you discovered that that just you fell in love with it, what aspects of mm. it do you love the most? I think it's because it's so easy to like do your own thing with something. I think with I mean, I, I think classical is at one far end of the spectrum where you're expected to play things exactly as they are on the sheet, you know, with just with some degree of interpretation, but usually not involving changing the form or any of the notes, just like dynamics and maybe some tempo changes, you know. Um, but with jazz, there's just so much leeway, I think, in what you can get away with. And um, just the entire concept of improvisation to me is so interesting in that... Um, you just like have a chord structure and you can just play whatever you want over it and you can do whatever you want and connect with people in your own way and you don't have to rely on connecting people through a template that somebody else has put out and granted yes people did write the chord progressions but you're doing a big part in providing your own melody to the song which is just so interesting to me and i don't i don't know if i thought that way when i was a kid you know, at this, as a kid, I probably thought, oh, man, playing the blues scale was really fun. And that's what I did. I played a lot of the blues scale. And uh, then eventually you you learn more. <laughs> so when I first discovered your channel, I was not only shocked at how prolific you are uh, at so many instruments, you know, just because in, in many or... Uh, just about all of your your videos, you're playing the majority of instruments. Um, Thank but then you. I, yeah. li- I listened to an interview with you, and I was shocked at how young you are, and that you know all these instruments, and that you play, you know, frankly, very well. Um, when did you start learning to play music? You know, were your parents supportive of that? Did it start at a really young age? Um, did you practice like 12 hours a day? You know, how did you get to where you are now, being so prolific and, and so good at all those different instruments? Oh man, I've I can't say I've ever like practiced for like more than two hours in a day, maybe like two and a half. But I just I I don't I don't like practice as much as some other people do. You know, like some people like like will go into practice and come out four hours later and say, "Yeah, man, I hit the shed real good." And that's just not that's just not me. Is um, that like a common term? I hit the shed because I've heard the term woodshed. Like yeah, know. well, so I, I study at Berkeley right now. Yeah, yeah. And so like and like when when you're talking to somebody in the like the lunchroom, and what are you gonna do later today, man? I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go back to my room, do some homework, then I'm gonna hit the shed for a few <laughs> hours and then get some food. Yeah, that's, that's exactly awesome. what they say. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Um. So back to the parents thing. My my dad played trumpet for like. High, his high school days but nothing past that mm-hmm. um i only have like one musical member of my family who uh plays piano pretty well um but apart from i started playing um my first instrument was piano which i started in the second grade and i think i was about seven years old something like that and i i remember teaching myself how to read sheet music for the first time um just out of method books that were in the piano and i think most of where i've picked up instrumental skills is just from listening um, watching videos of people and understanding what techniques they're doing to get the certain sounds they are, and um, transcribing a lot of things. Transcribing is, I think, is the best way to improve as a soloist, hands down. There's, it's, it's like, you can't like learning a language. You know, you can't really just study the theory of a language and not listen to people speak it to be really fluent and sound like your native speaker. Because what I think a jazz musician wants to, the ultimate goal is to be, this is going to sound really cheesy, but the native speaker of the jazz language. Right, right. (laughs) Right. And the best way to do that is through studying the people who came before you through transcription and like identifying every little thing that they did and figuring out how you can figure out how to do that and your choice to incorporate, and it's your choice to incorporate it in your own style if you'd like to. Uh, a common theme throughout all these interviews that I've done so far 
uh, especially with the uh, 8-bit music theory. As, as He's the man. Know, yeah, he is. He is. He's awesome. Um, as you know, he is like a massive fan of transcription. We talked about that for a while. Um, and I've interviewed other composers and talked to other composers, and they're just like, man, you got to transcribe the people you love, figure out why it sounds good, and... I'm so glad it. everybody else is saying that I'm not the only one. No, not no, not at all, man. You're just you're uh, you are echoing the uh, the sentiment that seems to be on everyone's lips. Oh, fantastic! Yes. Um, so you mentioned in an interview that I think this is super cool um, that you find out that you're oftentimes, or maybe not often, but in certain cases, you're someone's first exposure to jazz, and and they yeah. uh, they like jazz because of your music, which I'm sure feels mm-hmm. really good because. Jazz is probably one of those genres that it's like probably gets a bad rap. People think Kenny G. So what are some artists or albums that you would point people toward that are like the fundamental uh, sort of the like like the pivotal albums of jazz that have really inspired you? That's a great question. I'm so glad you asked that. Um, I in the. I would first suggest, if you're listening to a video of mine, read the description because I'll almost always mention whatever artist I was inspired by or took ideas from um, in that particular arrangement. Um, Snarky Puppy is the prevailing, you know, influence of mine that I just love so much. I've loved them for several years. Um, Their album, We Like It Here, is Mm -hmm. just, is like, that's, I've... When I've gotten the question like, "What's the one I'll, I'll, the one album you would take to a desert island with you?" That's my album. Just That's awesome. It has it has so much variety on it, and it's it's just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful record. Um, apart from that, my musical tastes have like shifted throughout the years, and I I used to be really into big band, and now I'm really into like combo stuff. And there's just different artists all the time. Um, but some of the ones who have made um, constant over the years i would say brian blade and the fellowship band which is a fantastic group um any of michael brecker's albums he's one of my main inspirations for saxophone awesome um ben wendell he's a more recent saxophonist but his arrangements are very they're like modern modern jazz um contemporary jazz i feel like there's like there's a word that you you can't say like Mm avant-garde because then like then people think it's weird like like grumbly noisy stuff right right um, which which is not at all i i just it's like a new interpretation of what jazz used to be or what jazz is now a new interpretation of what the jazz genre means um some other names to throw out there i would say bob reynolds uh hiromi uihara uh anybody else let me look on spotify what about like miles see. davis <laughs> do you like miles davis well see the thing about the thing about those guys i i I do like their music, and I understand that they are like the foundations of where, you know, where jazz is now. Mm-hmm. But I, I honestly can't say I would rather listen to Miles Davis than anything that was that's like more recent. You know, I'm um, so glad you said and, that because I feel really bad because I listened to uh, Kinda Blue, and yeah, and I was like, I prefer Snarky Puppy to this. I know that might oh, be yeah, sacrilegious, it, it's, but it's like I just do. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, there's there's nothing wrong with that, man. And I mean, of course, I you I'm sure you can deduce that. I I would agree with you in that situation. Yeah. Um. And some people argue that Snarky Puppy is not really jazz, and that they're more like like a like a like a funk band that calls themselves a jazz band. Whatever genres are just kind of like a they're more of a commercial label than anything else. I sure. think. Yeah. Um. Or a way for like us humans to group different organizations of sounds into coherent areas, which right. we can talk about with other people sure um but once if you listening to miles davis from like the contextual perspective of like wow at this time period this was like the new stuff this was crazy yeah or listen listening to coltrane or imagining what it was like when giant steps first came out in whatever year it did that's i think to fully enjoy that stuff you have to listen listen to it with a historical perspective in mind or Mm -hmm. that's how i do it and then the more modern stuff i just enjoy because i think it's like viscerally stimulating or just fun to listen to Mm -hmm. in layman's terms so i'm really interested in your process man like because how you get from hearing a song that you like to what you put on youtube is i imagine is pretty uh pretty in-depth can you walk me through kind of like everything you do from the moment you discover a song 
that you're like, I want to cover this. I'm going to do it all the way to the actual posting of the song. Can you kind of just like run me through an example of your process? Oh, certainly. I have like a I have a checklist that does that like says everything that you want to know. I love checklists. Um, that, I, that, I, that I have for I. Oh, man, me too. I can't <laughs> live without them. It's like my it, I, the more I write down, the less my brain has to remember. Same. Which is always good. Same, dude. That's why I have a to do <laughs> app. I put everything in the to do app so I don't have yeah. to remember it or notes or something. Cause I'm, That's I, the way to go. I, I suck at remembering stuff, too. Yeah. Well, most the human brain sucks at remembering things when you want it to. Good point. Um, Good point. Yeah. So when I start an arrangement, it um, choosing the song, I think, is the hardest part because that's like the re- where the real creative juices need to flow. Um, usually I'll end up picking something from a game I've played before or a song that I just think is really interesting in some way or has some feature that I like to highlight. Um, I really like covering melodic songs because, you know, Jazz is a very melodic genre with like the the idea of like a head and then improvisation then a head the the melody is the one thing that different that differs the head from the improv section um so i'll 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 pick a song based on those criteria and then I'll usually think of ideas to arrange it or sometimes I think of the idea to arrange first before the song and usually the arrangement ideas comes from stuff I'm listening to like if I hear a cool let's say, like a, a cool drum beat in one song, and I think, huh, this would sound really cool if I put this video game song with it, and then I'll, like, play it on the piano and see how I think it sounds, and then, like, think about it in my head and say, yeah, that's really cool. So that's that's the hardest part, by far, is coming up with an idea that I like and that I know I will like a few weeks from now when I'm still working on the song. <laughs> from that point, everything I would say is very mechanical, which I, which I like. I think you should try and make your processes like as mechanical and simple as possible. Um, that's just, it just speeds things up. And when you have to make a ton of these videos, or I shouldn't say have to, but when, but when your personal goal is to make a ton of these videos for people to enjoy, you should get really good at making them quickly. Um, so from that point on, once I have the idea, I'll chart it out in Sibelius. That's what I've been using recently. Um, make parts, set up the parts. I, I've been using um, Fourscore on the iPad to read my parts now. I used to print them all out. Don't do that anymore. Too much paper. <laughs> Um, from that point, I'll record, uh, either I'll program the drum part with MIDI once I've got the arrangement done. Um, recently I've actually been playing the drum part myself because I have a MIDI drum kit now and that makes things a lot more fun. Um, but I also have to practice the drum part because it's, they're usually harder than I uh, can actually play. Um, and then I'll just go through and record the instruments pretty much based on the parts that I wrote earlier. So usually the order is like drums, bass, keyboard, saxophone, and then any other instruments. Um, I do that so when I play like solos on sax, I can have like a harmonic background to listen to uh, rather than rather than just listening to like the drum part and not knowing what is the harmony under me going to sound like, you know. And sometimes I'll even record like a scratch keyboard part or a scratch bass part, then record the sax part, then re-record the keyboard and bass. So it sounds like the piano player and the bass player are listening to what the saxophone player is doing and responding with that. And I th- and having a drum part, dealing with that, especially with the drum part, just makes some stuff, it just makes everything sound so much more alive and real. Like when, when, you're, when like you play like a, you repeat some figure on the sax solo and then the other people catch it. It's just such a gratifying feeling that I think is really hard to do when you're making music by yourself. Um, but it's just so satisfying. And that's what, what part of what makes live music great. And all, I record video for everything live at the same time. Right. So video, video has been going along with this all the time. A lot of people in the video game community, video game music community don't do that just because it's actually pretty hard to do, um, especially if your parts are very complex. But I think I've had enough experience sight reading and just playing other people's charts that it's not nothing. I don't worry about that anymore. Um, you sound like you had a question you wanted to interject. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, um, that's like a perfect segue. I want to make sure, is that is that your whole checklist? Because this checklist is awesome. Oh, everything after that is just like mixing um, and then doing like the YouTube metadata. That's basically it. But at that point, the music is pretty much done. Got it. So um, I'm super interested in this balance between like preparation and improvisation. Um, I mean, your sax solos are just... They're incredible, man. I've been mean, like, they're, they're, they're really, <laughs> oh, really thanks. good. Um, and so I'm wondering, like, obviously, I it's improvised, so you're not practicing that part. Um, do, you, when, do you practice and run through your charts a few times, and then you say, okay, here's where I'll do sort of an improvisation? Do you work any kind of licks out, or is it all, like, on the spot, um, you know, 
I'm just super curious. Does it take like five takes? Is it always like a one take thing? How how does That's a the great, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. Um, so re- regarding the first bit that you said of like, do I practice the parts beforehand? Sometimes, um, if I have a ch- if I have a chart that has like five saxophone parts and one is like the lead and the other ones are like the the background part, I'll usually just practice the lead part and just figure I can sight read the other ones because. Um, I wrote the thing, so it's also easier to sight read that way. Mm-hmm. Um, as for the solos, it usually takes a few takes. Um, I've been trying to limit myself to three recently because I feel like if I go past three, then I just start to get mad at myself, <laughs> which is unfortunate. But it's just it's just the reality of what what happens sometimes. Why do you um, get mad at yourself? Because I, I like I want to be able to record things quickly. And with quality, mm-hmm. you know, and when, you, when you're in a live situation, the band's not going to stop. But when you're recording in the studio, you can just stop the band really easily and just say, we're going to do that over again. And then some, and then after like take after take, it starts getting frustrating because you're hearing the same thing over and over again and you're just trying to get a good take. Um, so that's something I've struggled with forever and gotcha. I don't know if I'll ever figure that out. Um, but it does take a few takes and sometimes I'll like play one think i could do that better use some of the ideas from that previous take and then do it again but i try not to do too many of them fascinated just in general by people that can solo just just solo period because i'm i come from like a folk singer songwriter background that's kind of okay. my my shtick um so i pretty much have i'm my primary instrument is guitar and i can solo on that but i mostly use that to just accompany my voice um when you are soloing like what are you thinking about because obviously you're you're your fingers are moving so fast. Are you thinking, okay, I'm going to go to the E-flat Lydian scale now, and then I'm going to go back? Or is it all at this point just like muscle memory and uh, uh, like using sort of licks uh, all throughout whatever key the song's in? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's definitely a, a mix of all those things, I would Got say. Um, some people subscribe to the idea that you need to be like, that the, the, the ultimate goal for a jazz improviser is to be able to... Okay, I would say that the ultimate goal for a jazz improviser is to be able to play what you hear, right? But I, I'm not really sure how you're supposed to do that. Because, I mean, like, what you can... An exercise you can do is just, like, sing a simple phrase and then play it back perfectly on your instrument. That's a, that's a good point to be able to get to, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I... When I imp- when I personally improvise, I'm not really thinking about what am I hearing in my head, because like where do I go? Like what part of my head am I supposed to listen to? Um, the the thing about I'm I'm a huge music theory nerd, mm-hmm. um, which is why part of why I like eight bit stuff so much. Oh yeah, um, and that music theory is like a good set of guidelines that helps you make the right choices with you know what your aesthetic or whatever you want to choose from. So. You mean in general? General principles are like using solo, like soloing devices, like you know, repetition, connecting guide tones, increasing tension as the solo goes on, um, kind of like superimposing harmony, and then some more um, in some more advanced situations, or like using just the tension and release of dissonance versus consonance, things like that. Um, and I'm sure if you like, if someone went through the time of like transcribing my solos and analyzing them, there would be a lot of stuff in there that you could pull out that I probably wasn't even thinking of. Um, so a lot of it is muscle memory that I've just learned over playing playing other people's transcribed solos or playing scales or playing exercises over a long period of time that just kind of get under your fingers, you right. know? Right. So that that all goes back to transcription, man. I mean, it's just like this common yeah, theme. Exactly. Of, you know, learning yeah. learning the language. I'll tell you what I'm gonna yeah. do. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna be a high tier patron for Eight Bit, and I'm gonna request that he transcribe and analyze one of your solos. I think that would be a fantastic <laughs> collaboration. That would be really cool. That would that would actually be really good. You guys should do that. Um, just throw just that would be really funny. Throwing my hat in the ring. I know it's like no work. 
at all like on my end but uh i would love yeah to, i would love to see that that would be that would be really yeah cool. that was, that's, actually, that's actually a really good collaboration idea i mean i know he does a ton of work um and i, I don't think that video would go like super popular you know because it's not like some like it, it's not quite like a, like a song from a video game that everybody knows it's like of someone solo over a song from a video game that people might know it's a little it's a little like it's, deeper it's, pr- it's into pretty the meta. rabbit hole it's pretty meta yeah your your covers i mean they're mixed really well so i've i've mixed a few albums myself and i'm listening to it and i'm like man these have like a really polished mix um can you talk a little bit about uh maybe some software some tools that you use to like mix or master your stuff mm-hmm. well in in just the years I've spent on YouTube developing my my sound. I mean, you can go back like several years and say that and hear that my mixes were trash back then, um, or maybe not trash, but just like not polished. I would right. say. Um, and this is this is really interesting comparison, but a lot of my mixing knowledge is just reference mixing. It's the same thing with transcribing. Like all I do, I mean, it's it's literally like snarky puppy songs. I'll pull them up. And then I'll listen for a specific element, or like let's say, the the organ comping part that's panned to the right in the background that has a high pass filter and some saturation on it, and say, okay, I can just I can figure I can hear that, figure that out, change the tone on my organ a little bit to match something like that. Yeah. Um. Or or with the drums. I mean, I'm fortunate enough to use Superior Drummer where I have the the opportunity to like tune things or um change the amount of bleed in the overhead mic you know and I, that's something that you don't really get with the luxury of recording in the actual studio if i was to actually record these like acoustically that would be i would not like be able to do that because that's just a whole different game that i haven't played sure but i would say um my philosophy with mixing is like just comes from reference mixing and um of course there are common practices like making sure that the bass and the kick drum are have separate frequencies that they're actually highlighting and you know using the stereo image to your um your benefit using the principles of like um of stereo width by panning things um using eq to push something forward in the mix or push something back using compression etc mm-hmm. um some i use the fab filter plugin series oh yeah um just because they are the 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 GOIs in those are so beautiful and so easy to understand. Oh yeah. That I just I love using them. Um I've never really understood the whole thing like this plugin has a particular sound. I mean, I, I get why people do that, but maybe just because I haven't used enough plugins to really understand. Um and that's totally my fault. If it isn't, I'm not gonna complain about it to anybody else. Um the DAW I use is Reaper, which is I've used it for several years now and it's very popular among the youtube you know cover music community because it is largely free i mean like it comes with like a 60-day free trial like winwar winrar though and it's not um it doesn't have any features that are locked behind a paywall or anything like that Mm -hmm. um which is nice and after the 60 days you can just keep using it for free I mean, I've chosen to pay for it. I, I technically have to because I make money using it. Um, but it's just, it's software that doesn't hold your hand in the way that Logic does, where Logic will give you a ton of instruments right from the start mm-hmm. that you can just use and play with. Um, so it's it's kind of similar to Pro Tools in that way, where I don't think you get a lot of built-in sounds. But I just think that the potential with Reaper is incredible. Like, you can make custom actions, which are like, like, grouping together a lot of smaller actions into one thing for example i have an action that i use whenever i make a new saxophone recording for somebody i press one button and then it prompts me for a backing track file it prompts me for the file path to save everything and then the entire template is just set up right there ready to go wow so it's such powerful software and it's the sky's the limit with um what you can do with it that's really cool. And, you know, my interview with uh, 8-Bit, he mentioned he also uses Reaper. And he uh, he said that he had paid for it on his old computer, but on his new computer, he didn't pay for it. So every time he logs in, it's like, oh, you've been using Reaper for approximately like 4,000 hours or whatever. <laughs> Just gets more and more ridiculous. Oh, that's fantastic. Cool, man. That's, that's, really, uh, that's really helpful. Uh, I appreciate you going in depth with Reaper. I actually had never, I did not know that. I did not know that. So um, yeah, there's a lot of potential with it. And as far as like other plugins having a certain sound, like if you like real audio files, 
will be like, oh, this plugin colors the sound so warmly. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I can't hear it. it. They all sound good. You know, like an EQ is an EQ, yeah. a compressor is a compressor. Yeah. But I do love the FabFilter series. It's, it is it is a beautiful uh, set mm-hmm. of uh, set of plugins. Yeah. Um, that brings up another thing I wanted to highlight just really yeah, briefly. Of course. Is that I think that um, being an audiophile is like, yeah, sure, you can complain about quality all you want. And so, oh, I, I don't listen to MP3s unless they're 320 kilobytes per second. Right. Um, but it, what really matters is how you make people feel. Sure. Like, if if your music is pristinely recorded and is just not interesting, then what does it matter? You know, it's so much better to have music that is interesting to somebody or strikes some emotional chord with them um, that is recorded, like, with your iPhone or something. Absolutely. It's all about emotional response because music is art and art is one of these those unique things that can stimulate human emotions in in that sort of way without even needing any words um and i think that's just so powerful and some people don't really understand it and focus too much on like licks or the gear or getting this certain quality thing i think it's all about the emotional impression so pay attention audiophiles and stop being so pretentious i think you should release this episode in MP3. really low quality. Yes. Or no, just 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 that. just that particular part. Just like make it really low quality as soon as I start saying that. <laughs> Dude, I'm I'm going to do it. I promise you. It's it's <laughs> happening. And they're not going to know until right now and they're going to feel so bamboozled. Well, I'm a man of my word. Could you tell the difference? Because the emotional <laughs> impact of that part will still be great to them. <laughs> <laughs> it's so meta, man. That's, I love it. That's very meta. Okay. I want to talk uh, a little bit more about your musical proficiency, uh, specifically your sight reading skills, um, because, man, one thing that's on my bucket list, I really want to be able to sight read on the piano, and it's just hard, Mm -hmm. and I'm always impressed with people who have that ability, so here's my scenario, okay? If I gave you $1 million and (laughs) one month to train me on how to sight read, and I, I don't have to be an expert, right? I don't have to be like you know, uh, playing the hardest pieces by, by sight reading, but just, I have the basics of sight reading down and you are my full-time sight reading trainer for $1 million. Mm-hmm. What's the first thing you would do? What, tell me the path that you would guide me through to, to make me a better sight reader. Great question. The first thing I would do is I would teach you a system that I learned in middle school that I still use to this day called stars. I'm so excited. I love systems too. Checklists Which is, and yeah, systems. I mean, yeah. I mean, the, that's how, that's how, that's how the entire world works. It works in systems, whether you know it or not. Um, so the way that STARS works is it's a thing that you do as soon as you get a piece of sheet music when you're sight reading it. So the first R is for signatures. So you're going to look for the the key signature, the time signature, identify anything that you might find problematic. You scan the entire sheet music just for that. And you can like you know highlight them with your pencil too. Um, the T, I think, is for tempo. And you look for tempo changes and things like that and just be aware of what's coming up in the music as soon as you get it. It's just a list of things that you, this is just a list of things that you you do right when you get the sheet music so you're not surprised by anything. Um, then A is for articulations. So staccato, legato, anything that, like if there's a section that has a lot of staccato notes, you might want to make a note of that. Um, or just any particular articulations that the, the arranger or composer put in. Um... S-T-A-R, R is for rhythm, so you scan the piece and look for any particular rhythmic sections that, that at your at a glance look challenging to you. Um, sometimes it can be a challenge to identify what's going to be hard, and that's something you'll just learn by reading more pieces of music. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last S is for symbols. Um, not like the crash symbols kind, but the S-Y-M-B-O-L-S kind. <laughs> right, right. Which, which is for like anything, um, like maybe like a D-S- like a DSL coda mm-hmm. or um, some like dynamics, things like that. Just musical symbols that don't really fall under the, all, the other categories. It's kind of like a catch-all category. That is an awesome system. Okay, so once you teach me stars, I'm like, all right, man, I suck at black keys. What do I do? How do I? What do I do next? How do I read this? Well, that's not a that's not a sight reading problem. That's, that's just being a bad at piano problem. Oh yikes! <laughs> just got called out. That's I true. don't actually. I don't actually. I don't actually mean that. I mean, 
having proficiency at your instrument <laughs> is, of course, very important to be able to sight read. And even if you can like read something and you know what you're supposed to play, if you can't play it because you haven't practiced that type of thing, then that's a problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I fall into that sometimes as well with like particularly with the sax solos that I write when I've got like multiple saxes playing in harmony at the same time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the stuff I write in there is it's like friendly to the top saxophone but like the the second from the bottom one gets shafted and gets a really really stupid part that's hard to play. Mm-hmm. Um uh I don't I won't go on a tangent there. There's a good one I had. Um go on go on a tangent, but, man. This is a tangent. Okay, this is a okay, tangent safe fine. space. All right, all right. So in this this is this one really obscure thing I did that I don't think anybody has ever commented on in a video. Um, I did this cover of March to, March to Deliverance from Fire Emblem Echoes, which is the map or either the map theme or the battle theme for um, the male protagonist in that game. And I wrote a sax soli. And normally with sax solis, you'll just do like block voicing harmonize like harmonizations, things like that. Wait, hold up. What is a sax t- soli? A sax soli is where you have you like you write a melody. You have there's one saxophone part that's playing a melody, and then you have usually like three to four other parts that are playing the exact same rhythm, but just harmonized. Gotcha. Okay. So it's like it's like a yeah, it's like a group solo kind of thing, and everybody's playing in harmony with each other. Got it. And so usually the way you would harmonize that is just whatever chord is at the moment is like is there at the moment. You fill that out with the voices in the saxophone in the saxophone section. So instead of doing that normally, what I did this time was I did it algorithmically with half steps. Wow. So I have, there's, um, Michael Brecker had this thing called an iwi, which is an electronic wind instrument. And he had this um, patch set on it that would auto-harmonize a chord below the top note he was playing according to some, like, sequence of numbers, which would be, like, the number of half steps between from the top note down to the next note and then the next note there would be different numbers and then these numbers wouldn't stay constant so it's not like you had the this constant shape they would like shift so you would have like the the top note then another note maybe like six half steps below and then another note two half steps below but that two number two would change in a pattern in a cycle of two eight six ten or something like that so wow. you would play the first one, which is zero, like the, the the principal note, six half steps down, two more half steps down. The next note you play would be the top note, six half steps down, then eight half steps down in addition. So that's meant to be done by a computer, but I did it acoustically, and it was just a pain in the butt to play because it was not meant for like it. It was like atonal almost. It was just so hard, but it sounded really cool at the end, and I don't know if anybody caught on to it. What were we talking about before that that led to this? It was like... I was asking you what a sax soli um, was, and then yeah, before yeah, that, okay. we were talking about This is about reading. sight reading. Yeah, okay. So back to, back to the sight reading thing. Um, in, so I would have you apply stars to things. Um, then I think the process of writing out music is actually something that a, a lot of people don't do enough when it comes to sight reading. Um, so, I mean, I wouldn't like force you to do transcription but i would highly recommend that you pick a song that you like and then try and transcribe it um not for the same purpose of like picking up improvisational vocabulary like like how you would transcribe a jazz solo Mm -hmm. um but this is more for just like gaining familiarity with general music notation and um how to notate things because once you understand how to notate you can get inside the mind of the person who wrote the sheet music you're about to sight read and understand why they wrote things this way, and that will help you just a little bit more in your sight reading. Honestly, I think it just comes down to volume, not like volume is in amplitude, but like volume of doing that. Just do that a lot, yeah. and you'll get better at it. Um, but the process that you're talking about sounds more like sight reading a piece that you're going to learn for the first time, mm-hmm. um, and then you're going to eventually work up and then you know, play it later at a more proficient level sure um in that, that case sense. i would say start super slow like 
incredibly slow, slower than you think you need to. Um, because what you, the, the thing is, the way, the way that I think of it is that, I mean, when you're slow, what you're doing is you're training your brain to think of the motions you have, the motions you have to do, um, like in a very sequential order. And when you're slow, the brain has time to figure out what the next, what like the optimal path, the next hand position is. And then you can just execute that at a much slower speed. And then once you've done that enough times where it almost becomes muscle memory and your brain remembers those steps, you can start decreasing the time between those executions that your brain has to do. And eventually they just get chained together into one sequence of actions that you can just perform at a very a potentially pretty high level granted that takes a lot of time and practicing slow is really not very pleasant i would say um because you're not really hearing the piece as it's meant to be but if you start out too fast what you're doing is your brain is building these like movement patterns that aren't gonna that are are not clean and they're not going to serve you well as you improve the piece i mean like if this is short term and you're just going to like run through it once or twice. Yeah, I guess you could do it at the original tempo because it's not a long-term thing. But if you really if you're learning something that's very challenging, then start slow and let your brain learn these movements. That is some really good advice. And did you by chance uh uh get parts of that from Adam Neely's video? Um he's yeah, I think that was maybe not the first time I heard it, but his video, I've seen that video, and his video does confirm that theory of mine. Yeah, yeah, I saw that video, and it sounded a lot of, like, uh, doing the motions fast, but leaving slow space between them, uh, if yes. that makes sense. So, just so, like, you know, you, you want to, you, you hold your hands in a certain key position, or a certain hand position on the piano, and then you wait a few seconds, and you quickly move to the next hand position. It's not like you're slowly lifting and moving to the next hand position. It's, you're just exactly. doing the actions, but there's a, a slower space in between the actions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's allowing more time for thought rather than allowing more time for motion. I want to learn, uh, you know, all 12 keys to be able to play, you know, uh, comfortably in all any 12 keys, um, all the 12 keys. Um, where would you start with that? You know, something I've been doing is just learning tonics and dominance around the circle of fifths. Um, you know, how do you get to a place, would you say, where you can be comfortable sort of playing in all 12 keys? And it might just be as simple as do it a lot, but is there a play scales a lot, play scales, play scales, play scales, all the variations of the scales a lot, because in, in reality, there are only so many patterns. I mean, it's like, once you, if you're not factoring in rhythm, there are only so many like pitch patterns that you can have. That's a finite number. Once you once you go to rhythm, things are a little more complicated because theoretically you could develop, you could uh, divide a beat like infinitesimally, and you could have like really really small divisions. But let's not think about that. Um, but <laughs> if you have just like pitch patterns, you know, like doing your scale in fifths, doing your scales in sixths, doing your scales in thirds and fourths. I mean, once you get those under your belt in all 12 keys, you've got, like, the framework to pretty much complete anything, you know? I mean, yes, there are chromatic things, um, but you will pick up... Most chromatic things are, like, covered by doing it in another key or something like that. Um, Like, if you're moving from F... If you're thinking about the motion from F to C sharp in the key of F, which would be an augmented fifth, you're like, oh, crap, I I don't practice my F scale in fifths. But if you're practicing your C-sharp scale in sixths, then you've got that one covered because there's an E-sharp, which is inharmonically F, that goes to C-sharp. That was just a very specific example. But in general, practice a lot of scales, a lot of permutations of those scales. Um, and that's how I think you gain familiarity in any key. That makes a lot of sense. And would the same philosophy sort of apply to chords, like going from one to three, one to four, one to five with in chordal relationships? Or do you think if you learn the scales, the chords kind of follow? Um, I would, I'm not sure I would suggest the same method of like for, for chords. I would say um, getting an understanding of the function of those chords or like this is the, rather than thinking of like G minor, C7, F as like separate entities, I would just, you, you got to group them together as, as a two, five, one, right? And once you, once you think of everything in numbers, you can move them into all keys much more easily because you don't have to think of all right 
this this chord, I I I'm in F major and I'm going down to D flat, so that's down a that's down a, a major third, and then I got to move G down a major third, I got to move B flat then a major third, and that's, that's just, or, yeah, and that's just a lot of unnecessary thinking, I think. Um, so, like thinking of chords in terms of obviously major and minor, but thinking of numbers and function um, is also really helpful. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your particular uh, creative philosophy, and then we'll wrap it up with just a few questions about your YouTube channel. Oh, you said you said the P word. Philosophy. I could tell you're a philosophical guy when you said you could divide a beat infinitesimally. I was like, oh, snap. This is getting... <laughs> this, and a few other things you said earlier got pretty metaphysical. So I, I have a feeling this could quickly become a philosophical podcast. But... I'm down. I'm down for it, man. Oh, oh, well, maybe episode two needs to be uh, a little more philosophical. We can get philosophical now because you know I know you had talked about how you released the Odyssey cover with a male vocalist. You had received some backlash on that, so you kind of reevaluated, you know, the future of your channel and the mission and vision mm-hmm. of your channel, stuff like that. Um, so, how do you think through doing music that you love with other things that you know you're a you're a you're a sizable channel now, you know, you have an audience that wants certain things, you know, um, how do you balance those things? You know, how do you, how do you balance that knowing that this is probably something that, you know, could be a long-term monetary thing for you, but you want to be true to yourself and you don't just want to be making music, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, that's popular writing the waves of trends, you know, how do do you balance that? Well, there's, I mean, there's a little bit of those elements in everything. Like, there's a little bit of, um, like the whole the whole me having a YouTube channel. Just that statement means that I'm not being 100% like true to myself in a way. You know, like I'm not mm. making the music entirely for myself. Sure. Like just just the fact that I share these videos on the internet means that, yeah, I'm expecting some sort of audience, or I'm making them for some sort of audience. Um, that being said there is a point where you get to make music too much for an audience where you pander too much to what they want. And, um, the whole Mario Odyssey thing, I'm not sure if that was like the issue with the male vocalist was like actually the main problem with that. I mean, there were some other issues with the arrangement too. Um, just in my, in my mind, but that was the thing that got me to think about it at least. Um, what do you, what do you think? Just curious. What do you think were some of the issues that caused that reaction? Um, the fact that I usually collaborate with other, um, that I, I hadn't worked with a male vocalist before, um, on my channel and I was, and I don't think I arranged the song in a way that was particularly suitable to that. Um, like just in, in terms of like writing ranges of certain instruments and when Jump Up Superstar was really big and everybody was excited for the game and then you have this video that's like a cover of it and everybody's like, oh yeah, it'll be just like the original. And then you have a male vocalist, which is like an octave down. Um, sure. So I'm, I'm sure it was, it was shocking to some people and you know, I'm, I'm past it. I'm not, <laughs> I don't really think about it too much anymore. That's good. Um, to, so to, to get back to your, your question about, balancing um i think it's just accepting the reality that that's what a professional does you know an amateur i mean this this these thoughts are partially coming from jackson parodi who is a fellow um video game music cover artist who does stuff on the accordion he did this long twitch stream where he talked about this and i i agree with a lot of what he said um that as a professional you're doing this to support yourself and to make money and sometimes that means doing things that you don't necessarily enjoy, um, which is just part of the job. Like you're never going to you're never going to have a life where you get to do only what you want and be completely happy with it because that's just not the reality of human existence. There's always going to be some sort of struggle, and there's always going to be some sort of you know obligation you have to meet. And that's like part of the fun of being alive. I think is like finding is finding that balance or finding ways you can turn a negative situation into a positive situation um so for me since that period of time i focused a lot more on what i want to do personally and it hasn't been necessarily the best thing for the channel and there's also been some youtube changes that have changed things in regards to the channel um but it's just been it's been really good for me especially when i think about the fact that this is a long-term thing 
right? And viral videos, yes, are great, but they are not necessarily the most sustainable thing in the long term because you can't just keep pumping out viral video after viral video after viral video. That's just not how things work. In order to have long-term success, you need to play the long game, which is making, you know, content that's consistent and prioritizing consistency over perfection, which is something that I struggled with for a while and something that the weekly deadline or now the bi-weekly deadline has really helped me with. Um, you, does that answer the question? That, no, that totally answers the question, man. I think that dichotomy between a professional and an amateur, um, you know, I'm a big fan of this book called The War of Art. Have you read that? Oh, yeah. I hate that book. Why do you hate it? I just can't stand the author. He sounds so pretentious. Like, I understand the idea of... <laughs> I mean, I, I, I read a lot of books. Um, yeah. But that's just one I couldn't stand. Um, I understand the idea of, like, your muse and not sacrificing anything for your muse. But, like, that that pers- his perspective on that is in a world that doesn't exist, right? The, the world that we live in... Um, has you need to make money somehow and if you just did it like realistically speaking if you only do what your heart says your heart says is right like 100% of the time which even most people who say that they do what their heart says don't do that all the time that that just that's just not practical you know like if, if my heart said oh I, I love robbing banks and my muse is robbing banks to make the world a better place and to show capitalism who's boss, <laughs> something like that. Right. Then that's just not pra- that's not practical. Um, I like the idea that he put he puts forth of um, resistance, and I think that's a good thing to be aware of, and to be to let it be a guiding guiding principle to some extent. Um, but I'm I'm just not a fan of how he presents everything in the book. Like every page, every page to me just feels like. He's like, like my, like nagging to me about something and it doesn't seem very practical to me. Gotcha. Um, that's just what I, what I think well, about it. Well, um, never mind then. <laughs> I, I, I won't, I won't mention what I like about it. No, I was. I mean, no, go, go ahead. I, I want to hear, I want to hear what you have to say about it. I was just going to say that I appreciated his idea of the difference between the amateur and the professional because he uses those, that, those, uh, comparative terms quite often in the book um mm-hmm, and he mm-hmm. talks about how like an amateur because the way i what i i mean maybe i misinterpreted it, but the way i understood it is like the amateur only works when he feels like it whereas the professional gets up and gets up and works every day even if it hurts yeah because he's a professional. that's another definition that's pretty much the same yeah yeah exactly and and that kind of reminds me of a stephen king quote uh, where he says, you know, amateurs wait for inspiration. The rest of us just get up and work. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. and that I was actually, it's funny you mentioned your deadline because I added this to the question list that I was going to ask you because I noticed that on your, uh, on your YouTube, uh, on your YouTube channel art, you seem, you seem just from this talk, like a very structured, systematic guy. Am I right in saying that? Yeah. You, sh- you should see what you should see my Google calendar. Oh yeah. I, 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 I structure everything <laughs> in my Google calendar as well. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Do you have like multicolored stuff and different categories and all that stuff? Well, I I just I have one color for for me. I have a color for like um my roommate and I have a color for my girlfriend and like we keep like that's how just I manage my time. I don't do like the whole different colors for different things. I, I use it for people. That's uh, so. What what are some other? Before I ask the question, I'm curious. What are some other kind of like uh, nerdy, super organized, systematic things you do just in your life? Oh man. Okay, this is I love I love this question. So <laughs> I ha- I have a document that I've been working on for a while that's not completely up to date, um, but it's called the Insane Lorraine Music Key Processes. Wow, which is so nerdy, and it's it's a document. It's like I read this book called um, Work of the System by I don't forget the guy's name, um, but it's all about like to make a business run smoothly. If you write everything down and figure out where the inefficiencies are, that's that's just the way to do it. So I tried that with like my recording process. And so I have like a 39-step document that has everything that I do in like the process of recording, uh, just like the act of recording audio for a video, you know, and it's the most efficient way I can get it down to. Um, I also have another document called Insanity Music Video Editing Processes, which I have sent to my editor. Um, for my videos and he goes through that that process each time 
to make sure that the video comes out exactly as I specify it and rather than leaving any room for, you know, leeway. And while you might say that, oh, doesn't that like suck out the create the creative buzz? I would say no, because it gives you more time to think about the creative things that actually matter, like picking out good song ideas, you know. That is so um, dude, you are speaking that, my language. That is the nerdiest thing that I can think of that I do. Um I also meditate in the mornings. Uh, that's just a good thing. That's I've I've started doing that since last summer, and it's really helped in terms of like um, generally being happier and maintaining a clear mind. So let me ask you this: Is it possible to share with me your video and audio editing processy document, or is that like the Krabby Patty secret formula? I can I I don't I can send you the video editing document. Yeah, um, I don't have one done for the audio the audio side of things yet um i should write one up i would love to see that i would love to see that that would yeah i'm sure i'm sure it can be refined even more because like there are like there are some steps which really should be two steps and then there are some steps which really could be one step you know yeah so you mentioned that you have an editor um like so are you are you outsourcing a lot of the now that you've kind of grown to this size are you outsourcing a lot of that stuff or as much as possible just just the video editing um Pretty much just the video editing because I think that's my honestly my least favorite part of putting together videos. To me, it just feels tedious, and sometimes I feel re- I always manage to yawn whenever I open Adobe Premiere and start editing. Like, like it always it's like a, happens. It's like a Pavlovian response. Like, yeah, you just yawn yeah, when something Premiere like loads something up. like that. That's funny. Well, what, yeah. what I was going to ask you, and I, t- I got we got off track, but it's all good because this is great stuff. Is like, how has the weekly deadline helped you? tremendously oh my gosh like it is the reason i am here today and it's the 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 main idea the main thing i'm trying to avoid is the state of like option paralysis or like um like pursuance of perfection right because as, as as i was saying earlier it's the emotional response that matters you know and if you're 98, I, I aim for 98% in my videos. 98% good. Because the other 2% is not worth it, you know. Um, there's also the 80-20 principle, which you've probably heard of before. So, I, I I mean, I don't aim for 80. I aim a little higher than that. But I figure that, you know, I can get a good a good quality video. Maybe not the mo- Maybe not the best one I've ever made, but still good enough that I would be willing to send it to my grandma and say, Grandma, I'm so proud of this one. Um, but it's that deadlines are so important, man. If I did not have them, then I would just be like, you have less, you you just make things slower. I find that when I have more things to do, I do everything faster and usually better because that means I I know in my brain that I don't have time to waste. Um, and there's a healthy balance you have to maintain there. Cause like, if you're like a college student and you're trying to write an essay like the night before that's due, I think that's an unhealthy amount of pressure. And that's almost too little time to get quality. But once you find the right balance for yourself, deadlines, especially for a creative profession, are just extremely important. Absolutely. And creative people suck at this, man. Like, notoriously, they're bad at sticking to deadlines. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's this this law, I think it's called Parkinson's Law, that basically states that work. Yeah. Have you heard of that? Of course. Yes. Work expands to the time allotted to it. So yeah, it's yeah. like you t- you give yourself six weeks to complete a, a, a cover video. It'll take six weeks. You give yourself two weeks. <laughs> six it'll weeks? It'll take two weeks. Six, six, you're talking about some world that doesn't exist, my friend. You're talking about what? A world that doesn't exist. Why do you say that? Because it should never take six weeks for you to finish a cover video. <laughs> That's true. I'm saying if you give yourself that long and you like want to make it perfect, perfect... I could see a really procrastinating person maybe take well six, yeah. six weeks Ex- is kind of an arbitrary number. But, yeah, yeah. Um, well, this is this has been fun. This is awesome. Um, I I just have a few more questions about kind of the the future of your of you, insane in the rain, sure. and your channel. Um, what what do you see when you look down the tunnel of time and you know you think about where you want to take this? You know, do you want to keep well, building your YouTube audience? Do you have any ideas for other sort of monetization things? Um, is this what you want to be doing long term? Have you thought that far ahead? 
I'm curious. Yes, yes, yes to everything, pretty much. Um, okay. I really, I really enjoy making YouTube videos, and I really enjoy putting things out on the internet for people to um, just engage with, and I really like the internet as a platform overall. YouTube specifically is just the one that works out for me because I think it suits the type of content I make the best, um, and I do have some ideas for future things that aren't necessarily, like, I mean, I've made I've made a lot of albums, and I'm, I would always make, I'm going to be pushing myself to do more of those, um, because I think when you think of somebody, like, when you think of, like, you know, like, your your favorite music artist, like, it's a big event when they put out an album. It's like a, it's like a marking point in their timeline as like a, a history of, of, of themselves, you know? And I think it's, it's cool to be able to document your progress in that way is one thing. Sure. And also, you know, the more albums you have, the more of them will be sold probably. Sure. Yeah. Just by like this, that's like sheer volume. And I, I mean, I'm not trying to like solely extract money from people. Um, hey, but you gotta eat. That's, it's it's part of being a professional, man. Yeah. You got to do it. You got to eat. Um, yeah. Another so albums are the, one of the main things I'm thinking about. Another thing is branching out into things that aren't necessarily um, like albums. So I have I'm, I'm not going to talk too much about this, um, but have you have you seen a real book before? Yes. So and real books real books for those who don't know real books are just. Um, like a compilation of lead sheets. So like pieces of music that are usually like one or two pages long that have the mel- the basic melody of a song, um, the chord structure, the form, and any important other characteristics. And I think it would be the coolest thing in the world to have a video game music real book that you could just open, that you could go like... I'm imagining like for some kid in high school, you know, because I know a lot of my friends, um, fans are high schoolers who are like in their combo and it's like, man, we need tunes to play. And they're like, oh man, I don't know many jazz standards, but I love video game music and I have a bunch of video game music we could try out to play because I, I believe in like playing video game music is so much fun just because you, you have so many personal connections with it. And, um, that's something I'd like to make reality someday. The video game music real book. You could totally do that, man. I feel like the yeah. I feel like the the hardest part would be like just getting the lead sheets together and but you I mean you you've got the arrangements. Well, the hardest part would be copyright by far. Oh, true, yeah. Yeah, especially like if I I don't think a Nintendo real book would be very feasible because no, just of yeah. how they how they deal with things. It would need um, to be maybe down the line. Maybe down the line if like some someone some existed first. Like if they could see what a real book looked like, um, so that's something I'm working on behind the scenes. That's really cool. Keep man. it on the keep it keep it on the DL. I'll keep it on the DL, and you are, I can edit it out of this talk if you want. Well, you did explain to the audience what a real book is. Yeah, you don't um, you don't have to edit it out. How about I think it's okay. let me put a disclaimer: I, if you copy Carlos or steal his idea, I will personally hunt you down and kill you. No, okay, I won't. Sure. I, I won't say that. <laughs> That's a little sorry. Um, anyway, the um, the YouTube channel you have a lot of followers, or excuse me, a lot of subscribers, uh, which is awesome. Seems to be growing every day. What are some of the biggest sort of uh, things that you've discovered that have been key to your growth, and maybe even things like missteps uh, in your in your mm-hmm. YouTube career? Where it's like, man, I got to stop doing that because that's hurting me. Can you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that? Yeah. Um, so, like, make a, make a balance of... It's obvious that some video game songs are more popular than others, right? And it's you can usually figure that out just by, you know, looking at, like, a, like an upload of the original on YouTube or something like that. Or just, like, going on Twitter and seeing what games people are talking about. Um, but apart from, like, picking your songs carefully... Um, what is the word? Uh, oh, just consistency. Posting videos often and making sure that they're good. That's the best thing you can do because eventually they'll catch on. And I was very fortunate during the um, the period of where Undertale was big. That was like my big, like the big moment where I kind of shot up because um, I put out a, that's where my first video that hit a million views came from. It was Ghost Battle. And fortunately it was, I loved Undertale so much and that I was totally fine with just like, 
making a bunch of more Undertale videos because it was so great and everybody wanted it, and it was just a, it was just a great time, um, and that is very rare. So knowing when to capitalize on opportunities that you're given is very important. Um, but when there aren't really any things that like, like stand out to you, you know, just focus on making better content, making consistent things, and um, you know, growth does come eventually. Um, but also thinking of ways to make yourself different. Because I, I, I am very prideful in the fact that when most people think of video game jazz, they probably think of my channel, which is exactly like what you want. You want to be the best in whatever category you are. And if you can't be the best in a category that already exists, just make a new one, right? So I've, I'm still waiting for the um, video game music progressive bluegrass covers. Because I think that, in the style of the Punch Brothers, because I think that channel would be amazing, and I would listen to it all the time. But it doesn't exist yet until someone claims that niche. That is a... I love. First of all, I love the Punch Brothers. Second of yeah. all, that is an incredible idea. Um, and I've, I've heard like... You can you can steal that one. Don't steal the real book one, but you can steal that one. Yeah, <laughs> dude, I might steal that. Wow. What an amazing interview. Some of the most impactful things to me were... The stars system for sight reading a piece. I honestly never heard that before. Um, the fact that he automates redundant things like video editing and outsources them so that he can save time for more creative thinking. That's amazing. The unique power of transcribing music, how it familiarizes us with the vocabulary of whatever music we're, we're trying to create. And this last one, the one that was especially relevant to me as a content creator and to you if you're a content creator is the value of consistency over perfection and working to a deadline leave your most valuable takeaway in the comments so that we can start a conversation there's just there's so much this interview was so much fun you can check out more of carlos music at his channel just go to youtube and type in insane in the rain and you'll find it you can also find him on Twitter at Insane Rain Music. If you like his work, please consider supporting him on Patreon so we can get more great content out of Carlos. Well, that's it for today, guys. Thank you so much for listening and joining in, and I will see you on the next one.